Hello, Burn. Hello, Cod. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Nonfic Pod. Oh, that was so nice and rhymy. Anyone would think we planned that somehow. This week, we have an incredible guest, uh, Nadia Oosu, who has written a phenomenal memoir called Aftershocks. Now, I'm not a memoirist. Uh, Georgie is the person to go to for memoir. Uh, But I was really struck by how much of this prose is really in that art meets truth segment. Um, She talks an awful lot about things that are seismic and you get the sense of someone who is essentially sort of flowing like lava onto the page. Um, What is it that excites you, Georgie, when you get a really good memoir? I just want to be in their head. And it sounds like that's what Nadia is kind of achieving as well. I know quite a few people who are lava people, and I'm very attracted to those lava people who are getting it all out. And I want to be there and I want to hear it and catch some of it, maybe. I don't yeah, know. It, there is something just so brave and open about making yourself vulnerable on the page. So I'm at the point now of gearing up to publicise the next book. And that is not about me, although I do talk about our daughter in that quite a lot. And even that, with copious footnotes, copious citations, just feels terribly exposing, even though I'm basically hiding behind all of the science, or, or rather, I guess, defending myself with the research. So yeah, I have so much respect for memoirists and their ability to mine directly from the source. It's a weird process, isn't it? Because you you spend the time... As you mentioned, my first book is, well, it's officially classed as memoir. And you spend the time, I think of it as an adventure book, Mm. but it's an adventure book that I'm in. (laughs) And you spend that time kind of keeping it all to yourself and then you share it with your agent and then you share it with your editor. And then suddenly with with very little, it feels like very little warning, even though it's often a year or more, you are... In theory, you're out in the world and anyone can access your emotions and your thoughts. And But then you don't often always hear the readers. There could be somebody right now reading my innermost Mm. feelings and thoughts and I will never know. And maybe they're judging me and maybe they hate me because that's where I usually go with these things. But (laughs) it's all good. Um, Is Nadia speaking to you from... Where is she speaking to you from? Because she travels all over the place, doesn't That's she? Right. Or she has done. She spent the pandemic in New York City. In fact, she seems to be fairly mm. settled in New York now. And we talk about the fact that cities like New York and like London are world cities. They are places where you hear multiple different languages. You can eat any variety of food. But this idea of a culture that is a mix... And being able, in Nadia's way, to accept being a person who is a mix, who does not have a simple, single, sum it up in a, in a one word identity. Mm. I find that where things are straightforward, it's very hard to fit in. Where everyone assumes a degree of complexity or unusualness, you can kind of pass <laughs> for just one of the crowd. And yeah, just hearing Nadia talk about her life as someone who has spanned continents and has 
lived in multiple places and had various parental figures and has felt so restless throughout her life, finding herself settling and feeling more at ease in a city that is in itself restless. I cannot wait to read it and I cannot wait to listen again to this interview. We are about to hear Burn interviewing Nadia Awusu about her memoir, Aftershocks. Nadia Owusu is a woman whose life story spans continents. Losses and uprootings marked her early life, leaving her with questions about her worth, her identity, and even her sanity. Described by Margot Jefferson as rigorous and luminous, and by Zhao Liu Guo as intense and intimate, Aftershock is a beautiful, moving, unflinching memoir of a woman who transcends boundaries and defies categories. It is my enormous pleasure to welcome Nadia Owusu to this week's episode of Nonfic Pod. Hello, Nadia. Thank you. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad you could join us. One of the first things that struck me when I read your book is how loving a portrait of your father it is. And you mentioned that he told you that he didn't want you believing that all questions are already answered. How does it feel to embrace that uncertainty? I mean, I, you know, I struggled against it for a long time. Um, and as I was sort of writing um, the book or the private project that became a book because it started as a private project, um, I realized how often he repeated that to me. Um, and I, I don't think that I had really internalized it. But um, what I found as I sort of started to kind of think about it and and consider sort of what it meant to embrace uncertainty, I actually found it really freeing. Um, because the reality is that, you know, so much of my life, and I think so much of most of our lives, well, especially now, I definitely know so much of most of our lives, especially now, but, you know, for many people, uncertainty is, is just what we live with and change is our reality. And so being open to, to that uncertainty and change and, you know, being open to the questions as much as the answers I have found just, yeah, incredibly freeing. That's wonderful. And there is a beautiful moment that you describe where you finally opened yourself up to music that your dad had played for you and you had not wonderfully appreciated as a child. Um, I don't think I appreciated John Coltrane as a child either, but <laughs> suddenly realising that that too is a music of exploration and change and questioning. Do you still listen to John Coltrane much? I do. I do. I, you know, I started listening to Coltrane. My father used to listen to him a lot, but I would try to avoid it. And he would try to drag me into listening to it. And, you know, he would always say, you know, it's it's just like any other language. You have to let go. And as a child, I just thought it was so dissonant and I didn't understand it. Um, but then when I started listening to it during a really difficult time in my life, you know, I was um, uh, kind of going through a period of depression and anxiety and I actually, so I started listening to it in a way to kind of reach back out to my father um, and see if I could find him in the music that he loved so much. And what I discovered was that 
um, actually sort of the more avant-garde jazz tells a story of the worlds that really resonated with me in that moment because there was so much dissonance and going back to the idea of uncertainty, so much uncertainty and just a willingness to sort of improvise and find new sounds and find a way through, find new language to describe experience. Um, so I do listen to to Coltrane a lot now and to sort of more experimental um, and avant-garde jazz. And I'm actually married to a jazz musician now. So jazz is very much a big part of my life. I had no idea <laughs> that your spouse is a jazz musician. Wow, that is embracing the change. No, it is. <laughs> I felt as I was reading this, just your relentless need to move, whether that was the walking the length of, the Ma- of Manhattan or rocking in the blue chair. Are you still restless in every sense of the word or have you managed to find some rest? You know, I, I do think that I am a very restless person. And it's funny because just as you were asking that, I was thinking about this morning I got up and I was, you know, doing a million things at once and multitasking. And then I sort of was like, I need to walk. And so I went out for an hour long walk and I came back sort of a little more settled. But yeah, I think that restlessness is definitely a big part of who I am. And maybe it's it's born of, you know, growing up sort of straddling lots of different cultures and worlds. And we were always moving, you know, when I was a child to a different country every couple of years. And and so I think that that just kind of got inside of me and, and very much is sort of the way that I walk through the world. But I, I do try to be more intentional now um, about sort of uh, finding moments to be quiet and to sit still and to slow down. Because I think often in those moments is when we feel, you know, when we can really get in touch with what, what our bodies are feeling and, um, and movement sort of frees us in a lot of ways, which I think is why I kind of attach myself to movement. If I keep moving, then, you know, I can sort of move away from things, but, but yeah, I try to find the balance now. I think both, both are useful. Yeah, we have uh, another guest on this series, uh, Caroline Williams, who is a science writer. He's just published a book called Move uh, with an exclamation mark. It's <laughs> very much a, um, a, a kind of a, a passion piece about the importance of movement and how the parts of our brain that evolved to help us plan movement as we became sort of brachiating primates still help us deal with emotional and planning and all kinds of other cognitive demands on us. And yeah, I was very struck by the the movement in the book, not just your movement across continents, but your physical movement. But one of the places that you say, you know, there's a gorgeous section in the book with very small vignettes of this is my home and this is my home. And one of the homes that you describe is an aircraft. How has that been in uh, for someone who has lived such a mobile life in this last 12 months where that mobility is curtailed? Have you embraced that or is that something that you're finding you're, you're chafing against? A little bit of both, I think. You know, I think that this has been um, a year that has asked a lot of questions for all of us. And for me, one of those questions is like, you know, who am I standing still, you know, <laughs> um, because movement has been so much a part of my life. Um, and, and I've, I've found a lot of interesting, um, I've done a lot of sort of introspection about, you know, my choices around movement. And I love your description of that book, um, 
because I do think that there is a lot to celebrate in movement. And I do think that it's so important. And often, even when I'm stuck writing, you know, I'll get up and dance or move around. And I, I often find that when I sit back down, I can sort of pick back in a more um, joyful, open place than I was when I was sort of struggling before. Um, but at the same time, um, the question of home is also a really important question in my life. And I've often sort of I've come to a place where I define it really expansively. So, you know, I, I choose, you know, the section that you were reading, I choose to um, embrace all of the homes that I have lived in and, you know, loved in complicated ways, belonged to and not at the same time. Um, but this year has sort of forced me to look at, well, but New York is my home in many ways. I've lived here my entire adult life. And although I spend a lot of time away from here, what does it mean to be in this community? And how can I be a better neighbor and a better friend and a better community member? So those are the kinds of questions that I'm sort of reflecting on now, which, you know, interestingly, um, I, I didn't really think about as deeply before. I Although I do a lot of sort of social justice work in my community and um, and that's sort of my career in addition to writing. At the same time, the question of sort of who I am in the community and how I show up for my neighbors, the people who live next door, like that's been something interesting to sort of meditate on and how being in community actually makes a home in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I'm very interested in how you're background, the, the way that you talk about your background of moving in a lot of places, living in the kinds of communities that are, to some extent, set aside for the children of diplomats, the children of members of the UN, to then come out and want to build communities for people and to enact social justice through civic architecture or through town planning. Is there a direct line or is that just way too simplistic of me? No, I think there is a line. You know, I've been thinking about it quite a bit, actually, over the last year, as I've been sort of thinking about going out into the world and talking about this book. And people will often ask me, well, are you going to quit your day job? And um, and the answer is no. I think a lot of the questions that I'm sort of grappling with in my writing are the same questions that I'm thinking about in the work that I do in sort of urban policy and planning, in that I really am asking sort of how do people... Um, find belonging? What makes a home? How do people live in community with each other? How can we be more connected? You know, um, how can families sort of um, thrive uh, in the places where they live? Um, and, you know, what are the borders and boundaries? Who drew them? Who made the rules about where people can live and where they can't live and why? And what are those things based on? Like, those are all the questions that as an artist, I'm really interested in. And then I get to engage with them in a very different way through the policy and planning work that I do. And I think that they really sort of inform each other, my writing about it and sort of being in the kind of more um, imaginary space and then sort of the realities on the ground in cities in America, which is, you know, the work that I do. I really enjoyed as well reading about your your family in the UK, who it sounds are based sort of very close to me. I'm in sort of northwest London okay. as well. And that idea of cities as places where there are multiple languages and multiple rhythms and people learn to ingest these different languages and use just small parts of them, but as ways of making connections. Are you drawn to those places of, you know, non-homogeneity. Um, I, I grew up in an extremely white, small Yorkshire 
working class farming place and I, I just fled from there because I, I yearned for contact with someone who talked about something other than sheep. Uh, but I wonder, you know, is there something in you that still yearns for the kind of place where you know you will hear multiple languages, you know you'll get to try someone else's food, someone else's way of being. Is that something that draws you to New York, for example? Definitely, yes. I mean, um, even growing up, sort of spending time with my aunties, they live in Kingsbury in Northwest London, and spending time with them, um, I was always surrounded by people from all over the world and different cultures, and there are different kinds of grocery stores, you know, that, that people go to. There's like an Asian grocery store and a Caribbean grocery store, and you know, everyone sort of is aware of each other's cultures in different ways and eats each other's food and, you know, can can use some slang um, from each other's languages. And I really love that. And I love that about New York as well. And in some ways, you know, I've, I've only lived in New York in the U.S. And um, my husband is from, uh, similar to you, a farm in North Carolina, which is a very sort of... Um, very white rural community in the mountains of North Carolina. And as much as I love going up there for a break, you know, to get away, it's so beautiful, but I don't think I could ever make my home there. It's just, it's the, the sort of, um, the, the cultural vibrancy is so much a part of who I am. And I think it's in my DNA too, just like, you know, I am half Ghanaian and half Armenian American and, grew up living in different countries. I was born in Tanzania. And so I think for me, a place like New York or like London just makes so much more sense um, in terms of being able to feel like people understand sort of my where I come from and um, and that I can feel connected to those places too. Towards the end of the book, in fact, I think very much at the end of the book, uh, again, an incredibly moving passage where you're pouring out libations to your ancestors and pouring out libations to generations of what you, in your words, you call mad black women. But I'm also really struck throughout the book by the effects of intergenerational trauma, the effects of police brutality, the words of Michelle Obama repeating the oft-told truth that you have to work twice as hard to be thought of as hard as good. Do you think we're reaching a point where we recognise that there is nothing insane about reacting to trauma with pain? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that we are having different conversations now than than I've seen, um, and um, and I think that people are sort of coming to an awareness of how all of these forces are connected in many ways. So you know, this summer. Um, in the States and then sort of beyond the States, um, we had this sort of racial reckoning um, because there was um, this ongoingness of police brutality and violence against Black people while we were also in the midst of sort of a collective grieving um, because of all of the losses from the pandemic. Um, and because of the collective grieving in some ways, that there was an openness to sort of to, to that kind of reckoning and to asking questions about, you know, who is bearing more of the burden of these losses and in what ways. And I think that that's a really important conversation, you know, as we come together to sort of collectively grieve and to sort of imagine what the future might look like on the other side of this lockdown. 
Um, at the same time, sort of asking ourselves, like, why were some communities hit harder than others? And um, if it really is about sort of moving forward together out of this grief, how do we also reckon with those other griefs that, you know, communities carry and have been carrying for a long time? That might have been easy for some to sort of, you know, minimize or dismiss or not realize sort of where the pain, as you're saying, or the anger are coming from. And so hopefully, you know, hopefully there is more openness to listening and and understanding. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm feeling more hopeful um, because of the conversations that I've been having with people around me. Um, but I think there's a lot of work to be done still. Well, your book contributes to that conversation. I mean, when you talk about your terror when your brother was taken in by the police for questioning, the portrait that you paint there of that repeated experience of families of particularly young black men of knowing that this force that for so many white people, it's, you know, go and tell a police officer, you know, the police will be here to keep you safe. How different that sense of trust or belief in justice is when you have the evidence of repeated acquittals for the most barbarous acts. Um, and yeah, it, it was a, an, an absolutely searing and beautiful read, a stunning, stunning piece of writing, and your honesty is overwhelmingly beautiful. Thank you so much. How does it feel to allow yourself to be seen so clearly, to be so honest and so open about the things that you've experienced and the ways that you have felt and reacted to those? How does it feel to have that vulnerability on the page? Yeah. So, you know, because I started writing um, what became Aftershocks more for myself as a private project, you know, I was doing a lot of, I was coming out of this period of depression and anxiety. And although I had um, a lot of dreams of being a writer, um, I thought that I was going to write a novel. And I was sort of working on a novel um, at the same time as I was working on pieces that eventually became Aftershocks. But I thought that, you know, that the, the, the writing about my life was really just for myself and was for a way for me to sort of narrate myself closer to understanding of sort of the forces that shaped my life and the histories that, um, that my family carries in their bodies and, you know, histories that I didn't learn a lot about in school, but that are so much a part of who I am in my life. And I wanted to, I wanted to get closer to them. So you know, with the Armenian genocide, there's still a lot of countries that deny the Armenian genocide. And yet um, the Armenian genocide is why I'm American. My mother's uh, grandparents um, were refugees um, and sort of walked across the desert in order to eventually make it to America. And on my father's side, uh, my father um, was from the Ashanti tribe of Ghana, and we didn't get a lot of African history in school. And um, so I, I definitely didn't learn about the Ashanti empire. We got a little bit of like sort of colonial history and the independence, um, the, the movement for independence. But I wanted to sort of have a deeper connection and understanding of my ancestors and what they went through and where they came from. And so that's sort of what I was doing. It was like for myself. And at the same time, I was sort of processing this anxiety and depression that I was coming out of. And because I was doing it for myself, I think I was able to be so honest. Um, and I found, you know, because I had in my mind that what I was trying to do was write myself toward healing. Um, so I was holding a few principles. And one of the principles was that, you know, I had to 
uh, right toward love and connection um, for the people in my life, um, which meant that nobody could be a villain in my life. I had to sort of like grapple with sort of what they were going through. And then at the same time, I had to, you know, be kind to myself, certainly, but also hold myself accountable for, for times where my behavior sort of contributed to harmful dynamics in my family or, um, or sort of where I sort of showed up in a way that I was less than proud of. And I really needed to hold myself accountable and reckon with those things and see about how I could move forward in a different, um, in a different way into the world. Um, and so, you know, I think again, because I was doing it for myself, I was, I was allowing myself to be so vulnerable and open on the page and also really playful in some ways. It was, you know, it, in some ways it was a way for me to also find my voice as a writer. You know, I had been writing for a long time, but I really allowed myself sort of the freedom to, uh, to, to let the, the narrative sort of take over and allow the form of each of the chapters to come from sort of what my curiosities were on the, on the topics that I was exploring. Um, and then years later, when I went back and sort of looked at some of that raw material and wondered if I could make art of it, I did have a moment of like, okay, well, am I actually going to put all of this there? But then, you know, the answer was, I've done all of this work to be so honest with myself. And I think I would do a disservice to myself and to the art if I were to sort of um, water it down in some way. And so I think the the process sort of um, pushed me to be more open and vulnerable. I mean, that was that was just so fascinating to hear from Nadia about her life in general. But it didn't end there. We went on to talk about her life as a writer. Um, so if you are one of our patrons, please stay tuned for the section that we call Shit I Wish I'd Known, uh, in which Nadia will dig a bit deeper into her trade secrets and the things that she would like to tell her younger self before embarking on this writing project. And if you're not a patron yet, you are not going to hear what Nadia Wusu has to say about the shit she wished she'd known, and that is a damn shame. So... Make sure you head on to the Patreon website, look us up at Nonfic Pod, and from a very, very small sum, a tiny weeny weeny sum, you can sponsor the podcast and help us keep making fantastic episodes like this one here. Yeah, our entry level tier is £2 a month, which wouldn't even buy you a coffee in this overpriced, exorbitant metropolis that I love so much. <laughs> so georgie what have you been reading this month okay i have been distracted by some unprecedented sunshine recently and also i'm getting a bit of brain drain at the moment so i've gone for books with lots of pictures. Oh, nice. <laughs> but that's taken me on quite a, a weird and wonderful tangent. Have you ever heard of the Chinese photographer Ren Hang? No, this is new to me. Please tell all. So he he spent his career taking quite extraordinary pictures of nudes. 
and they were his friends, generally speaking. He said that he didn't feel comfortable taking mm-hmm. pictures of strangers. Mm-hmm. So it's this book that of just the weirdest, most wonderful pictures, some of which we, we actually, I've, I've started hiding the book when certain people come around the house in case they open it up and, and think, wowzers trousers. But wowzers, yeah, no trousers. Yeah, wowzers, where are the trousers? There's a, there's a pretty crazy, I mean, almost every picture is a bit insane, but I was drawn to it, um, by reading a, an article in, on the White Review website about Ren Hang, um, which showed a couple of the pictures from the book. And there's this fantastic kind of, it looks like a, a beautiful landscape of mountains and it's just buttocks <laughs> all in a row with different colors and it's fab. It looks so good. So I was like, mm, I want to look at more pictures like this. So I got the book. So this is as much nonfiction reading as I've done, right? There's a two page introduction in English to this photo photography book. And that's, yeah, that's what I can access right now. But his mission was to show the Chinese body as just a body because he talks about how there's this idea that Chinese people don't have genitals. They're kind of robotic almost. And I just found that really interesting, an interesting take on it. He wrote poetry as well. And there's a little poem in this book, which is edited, I should say, by Diane Hansen. And it's deeply sad, but also very thought provoking. He has written, life is really one precious gift, but sometimes I feel that has been given to the wrong person. And I don't know, it, that stopped me in my tracks rather. And it, it feels to me like, obviously I do not know him and I am desperate to find more information about him. And hopefully somebody out there has written a biography of him, but he sounds like a, a great loss to the world, but yeah, really recommend checking him out, but not if you're in the presence of your granny, probably. <laughs> Depends on your granny, really, doesn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think anyone who is battled with the arsehole that is depression would recognise that sentiment. And if you're feeling that way, reach out to whatever is your local mm. suicide prevention service, because suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary agony. So if you're feeling that way and you're finding that's resonating, hang in there for us because it does get better. It does. And people want to help you. And do you know what? There's never a bad time to remind people of that, is there? I don't think. Thank you to each and every one of our listeners, everyone who is liking, sharing, subscribing, passing on the word about this podcast to someone else they think will like it. Thank you so much to our patrons, Juliet Miller, Claire and Alexander, Nicola Myrams, Alexandra Coyne, David Corney, and Mike Wire. And now a message from our sponsor, which is me. Do you know a child? Do you have a child? Did you used to be a child? Maybe you've always wanted to know why your brain ended up the way it did. In How to Build a Human, 
what science can tell us about childhood, I delve into all kinds of interesting studies and look at the great benefits of parenting like a scientist. I talk about compassion, curiosity, staying calm in the face of uncertainty, all of those things that we know we should do, but we sometimes find a little tricky. If you want to get in on the How to Build a Human Love, then you can pre-order it. It's available on our bookstore. If you order before the 1st of July 2021 and send your receipt to pre-order at emmaburn.net, I will make sure that you get some amazing bonus content. You'll get the full episode of Non-Fic Pod, including Shit I Wish I'd Known, which is normally reserved for patrons. You will get an amazing ebook full of activities that you can do with your family, experiments you can do on, oh, sorry, with your kids. And if you order it before the 1st of July and send your receipt to pre-order at emmaburn.net, that's pre-order at emmaburn.net, you will get some incredible bonus content. Yes, have a look at emmaburn.net. Professor Susan Golombok, who is the Director of the Centre for Family Research at the University of Cambridge, said Emma Byrne's reassuring message will inspire confidence and give insight into the mystery of the first years of life. In fact, for the first years of life and beyond, up to adolescence and becoming a parent, find out how the brain works in How to Build a Human. Nonfic Pod is brought to you by Beatrice Bazell, Emma Byrne, Georgie Cod, and Mike Wire. Where is tequila? Dans ma poche. <laughs> Dans ma bouche. help us by rating, reviewing and sharing non-fic pod. Every little helps to build our audience and that means we get to share fantastic non-fiction with more people just like you. And it helps us to keep bringing you the greatest authors and the hottest reads. 